millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello there, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show where I discover and share some of the best audio storytelling from around the world, picking from the 700,000 podcasts out there today. Coming up 50 years on from the moon landing and 13 minutes to the moon takes you inside the historic mission and how close it came to failure. Then a listener recommendation. Studio 360's a show all about culture and the arts and told me lots I didn't know about life as an opera extra. After that, Cops is the longest-running reality show in TV history. But how truthful and accurate is this portrayal of modern policing? Finally, the parenting spectrum. And what's it like to be a person with autism or the parent of an autistic child? Or to put all this in another way... I see someone throwing up and because he was wearing a mask like everybody else, um, it was coming through the eye opening of the mask. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Pig means pride, integrity and guts. Mm-hmm. So you can call me a pig all day long. Choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Emma, how do you describe being autistic? <laughs> Emma wrote, How do you describe being human? That's all coming up, and next time you hear something good, then why don't you let me know about it? Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address, and on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. <laughs> Almost 50 years ago, in July 1969, the US astronauts Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong went to the moon on Apollo 11 and then all safely came back to Earth again. It was a round trip of more than 760,000 kilometres and it was all achieved using computers and navigational technology we'd laugh at today. No wonder it's still hailed as one of the greatest achievements in human history. Now a new BBC series called 13 Minutes to the Moon reconsiders the moon landing. And using gripping old audio and interviews with astronauts, scientists, engineers and mission control staff, it shows how close Apollo 11 came to failure. I'll speak to the show's host, Kevin Fong, in just a moment. He wanted to be an astronaut, he worked for NASA, and he says his interest in space inspired him to follow a career in science and medicine. First, though... Here's some of episode one. Eagle Houston, your lineman is going, he eggs. On my mark, 3.30 till ignition. That's the voice of one of the characters you'll come to know. Charlie Duke sitting in mission control, radioing Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, reassuring them that they're OK to proceed. 
At this point in the mission, the crew of Apollo 11 had been in space for just over four days. Two hours earlier, their spacecraft had divided into two separate modules. One, with Michael Collins on board, remained in orbit, while the other, the landing craft, was crewed by Armstrong and Aldrin. In the clip you're about to hear, the mission control team is preparing for the most critical and dangerous stage of the mission, the final 13 minutes before landing. And now, the moment of truth. The 13 minutes begin. 50,000 feet above the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin ignite their engine. That slows Eagle, their spacecraft, down, allowing the moon's gravity to capture it, marking the start of their descent. Eagle's engine is now armed and ready to fire. The voices you can hear belong to Aldrin and the mission control team. The engine is now firing at 10% of its maximum thrust. But almost immediately, things start to go wrong. There are serious problems communicating with mission control. Spacecraft communications are absolutely lousy. We can't communicate to them, they can't communicate to us. And almost as soon as they get over that problem, Armstrong spots another. Looking down at the lunar surface still far below, Armstrong sees that the flight is not going to plan. They're travelling faster than expected and they're going to overshoot their target landing site. And back in Houston, the flight controllers, responsible for orchestrating the mission, are getting nervous. Stephen Bales is monitoring the guidance system for the lander and he realises that something isn't right. I am in big trouble because that vehicle is going toward the moon faster than it should be and it doesn't know it. If it grows by another 15 feet per second, I got to abort. Here's some 26-year-old kid, kid, sitting here at a console who could stop the lunar mission. Then, about five minutes into the descent, with 30,000 feet to go, the crew and mission control have another problem. This one with the unique computer controlling the flight, with alarm after alarm flashing up in the cabin. 12.02. We get this thing. 12.02. 12.02. I was totally in shock. That was a shocker for me. That only comes when it's really serious. There was something happening inside the computer that we did not understand. And for the first time, there is tension in the voice of the usually unshakable Neil Armstrong. My mind was, that's it, we're not going to land. Let's pause it there, with 30,000 feet to go and a lot more drama still to come. But by the end of episode 10, we'll have examined the entire final descent to the moment of touchdown. And by then, you'll have got to know the people whose voices you heard in that sequence, along with many more whose efforts made Project Apollo and the first landing on the moon possible. But to understand how the story ends, we have to go further back in time to the very beginning, to the events that gave birth to the space race and the shadow of war.
In many ways, that signal sets the stage for Project Apollo. For Americans, in 1957, that was the sound of fear. Signals from Sputnik, the world's first satellite orbiting the Earth. The satellite had been launched by the Soviet Union, the United States' only superpower rival. And while there was no direct military conflict between the two, their relationship was one of fierce competition in what was known as the Cold War. With the threat of nuclear conflict ever-present, the launch of Sputnik seemed to demonstrate the Soviet Union's technological superiority, and to the Americans, this was a thing of terror. Apollo flight controller Steve Bales was a schoolboy in small-town Iowa when Sputnik was launched. We were in a Cold War, worried about nuclear exchanges, we were worried about what might happen, because it easily could have happened. And then all of a sudden, there's this beeping ball going around above us that nobody can get to, nobody can stop. People can see from time to time. There were little uh, broadcasts that say, hey, go out and look at this time. You can see a little glimmer of light. People tried to do it. I never could, uh, but others did. It was, and here it was, beep, beep, beep. And then about a month later, I believe, they sent a dog into space. So not just can they send a piece of iron that can beep, and send an animal into space. And we think, are we that far behind? The sense of alarm was shared at the highest levels of the US government. Here's Robert Siemens, who joined NASA as a senior manager in its very first year, 1958. This is from an interview he recorded with the Johnson Space Center history office. Sputnik got a lot of world publicity. And whether the Soviets had planned it or not, to this day, nobody really quite knows, but, mm-hmm. but when they found out the impact this had, and then, then they played on it, and then they would do take another step, like putting a dog in space, or they, or they went around the moon and took a picture of the backside of the moon. Mm-hmm. And, and then when they finally put a man up there, mm-hmm. when Gagarin went into orbit, all hell broke loose. Now, that blew everybody's mind. First Sputnik, and now a man, Yuri Gagarin. This is how that mind-blowing news was reported to the world by the BBC and Moscow Radio. Half an hour ago, the Russians announced that they'd put the first man into space. An announcement broadcast from Moscow Radio in English said the world's first spaceship, Vostok... He is Airman Major Yuri Gagarin, an Air Force pilot, a citizen of the Union of the Soviet... Here's a Moscow recording of his voice speaking to Russian scientists as he went through space. Major Gagarin said that the flight was going on successfully, normal, visibility was good, and that he himself was feeling good as well. Some of episode one, we choose to go from 13 minutes to the moon from the BBC World Service. Now, the show's presenter, Kevin Fonk, wasn't even alive at the time of the moon landing in 1969. But he was fascinated by space. And of course, he heard all about it and followed other Apollo missions as a child. He's now an anaesthetist, but he once applied to be an astronaut and also worked for NASA for a while. So I asked him where he'd rank the Apollo 11 moon landing on the list of our greatest human achievements. I mean, it's without doubt one of the, if not the most impressive feats of exploration in the history of our species. You you can't say otherwise, really. No one else has done that. No human being has ever travelled faster or further. 
and it was really a watershed moment in history which, which saw us come together as as a crew of people to achieve this hugely complex task in, a, in an amazingly short period of time so there is no question that someone once said of Neil Armstrong that that he is one of the few figures of the 20th century who has an outside chance of being remembered in the 30th century and I think that tells you everything. Because obviously it's seen as a huge achievement and a huge success and I guess we've got this narrative that it's a you know great glory for humankind and, and everything else but one of the interesting things I thought listening to that first episode is it was quite close to going pretty badly wrong, wasn't it? Yeah, so we all know that Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon and that they were the first to do so. But most people don't really appreciate just how dramatic that final 13 minutes of descent before touchdown on the surface were. And that's why we chose to focus on that 13 minutes in, in, in the series it is because, you know, you ask people, they say, yeah, they landed, but they don't know that that. that they had problems with their communication, that the vehicle was running long on its target landing site, uh, that the computer on board the vehicle, which they absolutely depended upon, was failing, or it looked like it might be failing at one point. And then when he gets down to the surface of the moon, uh, Armstrong's got seconds of fuel left. You know, they're counting down 60 seconds, then 30 seconds. And in Mission Control, everyone listening to it, including Charlie Duke, who was someone we spoke to, who was an Apollo astronaut who was in Mission Control talking to the crew at that time said I thought that's it Um, we're not landing on the moon today we're done there's too many problems and yet they still succeeded and that is the remarkable story. What did you find in researching the the show that surprised you the most because you're obviously knowledgeable about the area and you've uh, you know you've worked at NASA were there things that you were finding out that you just had no idea about before? Yeah absolutely Uh, and you know for us uh, it it was it was an epic road trip and all told we were in in the United States near four nearly five weeks you know in separate uh, trips hunting down these people who had been part of this program and and yes I, you know, I, I guess more than some, I'm familiar with the story, but there was always new stuff. And, and that was for a number of reasons. One is because partly these people we're talking to are in their 80s, often their late 80s. And for them, you get the sense it's, it, they know it's the 50th anniversary. There's this sense of last chance to see, last chance to tell. And so I think some of them were telling stories in a way that they haven't told before. And that was a great joy and a great privilege. But but also there was just, there's so much story that, that, that actually when you dig as deep as that, you start to uncover it. And for me, one of the standout moments was my understanding of one of the lesser known missions that the story of which we tell uh, during the podcast series uh, is, is Apollo 7. And Apollo 7 is the first time they fly any Apollo vehicle into orbit. Uh, and yet we don't celebrate it. Like, you know, people should remember that crew the way we remember Alan Shepard or John Glenn or Yuri Gagarin, but kind of embarrassed about them because they, they, they're said to have, I guess, misbehaved a little bit during the flight. But that mission happens 21 months after three NASA astronauts are killed in the Apollo 1 fire. And so we spent an entire episode really talking about a remarkable 21-month period where they go from that fire to the, the phoenix that was Apollo 7. And actually, when you understand that the people who flew on Apollo 7 were the neighbours and friends and colleagues, close colleagues of the people who died in the fire, you kind of understand the pressure that was on them. Yeah. You kind of you know, you, 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 you come to a new understanding of that crew and what it was they did and, and actually how probably they should be remembered differently. I mean, if I wanted one thing from, from, from the, the series, you know, it is actually to sort of recalibrate our understanding of, of what some of these people went through and what they were. This task had never been done, but they weren't afraid of it. I know I wasn't. 
When we landed on the moon, the average age of the people that were working in the control center and supporting the flights, our average age was about 27, 27. And they stepped right up to it. I think that one of the really surprising things I found was that the people controlling the mission in mission control were so young. That's right. And and, and that was one of the things that struck me the most. Uh, one of my favourite interviews was the, with a guy called Stephen Bales, and he was a flight controller. And he's like the Luke Skywalker of the whole story. He he grows up in, in Iowa, in the United States, which is sort of a farming community. And he's a typical boy. He goes outside, stares at vast skies, at stars, and, and dreams of space, watches Walt Disney movies about space, and finds his way to the big city to to Houston, to NASA, works almost as a T-boy. He, he's given tours to, to VIPs through Mission Control when he starts there, but works his way up through the ranks. And finally, someone spots him for what he is, you know, this utterly dependable, hugely capable man who they, at the age of 26, they're happy to stick behind the desk to play one of the most critical roles of the distant phase of, of Apollo 11. So Stephen Bales, at 26 years old, like all of his other colleagues there in their 20s, finds himself behind the desk in the 13 minutes of descent to the moon on the end of one of the most critical decisions of the whole program. And and so that story is told over and over again through Apollo, but he is, for me, the best example. And, you know, even today, when we spoke to him at his house, 50 years later, he still can't believe he was in that seat, that he had that responsibility. He has this great line in, in the series where he says, yeah, here's some 26-year-old kid, 26-year-old <laughs> kid who can start the space mission. And, and you know, and even now he can't quite believe he was there, but, but he made that call. He saved the mission. One of the things as well that I thought just really elevated and it's so powerful is is all the audio, you know, the audio between Mission Control and the astronauts. No level. 60. 60 seconds. We've had you down. We copy you down, Eagle. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. How did you get hold of all that? Is that out in the public domain or did NASA have to give that to you? Or how, how did that come about? So on the one hand, NASA have made publicly available a lot of this archive material and, and you know, we're very grateful to them for doing that. But it's not just laid up there nicely in a nicely curated fashion. Uh, my my brilliant, brilliant and, and tirelessly uh, working uh, producer Andrew Luck Baker got deep into that archive and fished out. You know, we would talk about the stories, we would talk about the things that we wanted to understand. We would go in, we would delve hard into it, and we would discover these little gems. You know, because they're, they're it's it's like a lucky dip of clips. A lot of this stuff, it, you know, it's it's not, it's not arranged in any any sensible fashion. So so it, it's a huge body of work for for the team to have gone in and got that stuff. So yes, the stuff is kind of available. But but, but you have to go hunting for it. And then as the series goes on, what we're trying to do is to give the listener a much better understanding for the stuff that they're hearing in those audio loops. So when you hear Apollo audio, it's unmistakable. It can't be anything else. You know the instant it dials up on the speaker, you know what it is. You know it's astronauts talking to mission control. It couldn't be anything else. And we're familiar with it, but we don't really understand it. And so so what we wanted to do in the process of making this series was explode that stuff, that detail, so that when you listen to it again, you have a better understanding of what it is you're hearing and why there's that urgency and why you know every word, every phrase, every silence tells a story and, and we wanted to tell those stories. So that's what 13 Minutes to the Moon is all about. 
Kevin Fong, the host of 13 Minutes to the Moon from the BBC World Service, and that's produced by Andrew Luck Baker. Just one episode out so far, but the series is 12 episodes long. A new one comes out each Monday, and the final episode's going to coincide with the actual 50th anniversary of the moon landing on the 20th of July. And you can find details of where you can listen to more and subscribe if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Ian Henderson emailed me at pods at rnz.co.nz to tell me about one of his favourite shows, Studio 360. It covers culture and the arts and features stories about the people writing or making some of the biggest plays, books, shows, dance, films and music. Ian highlighted a recent episode for me all about the old folk song and murder ballad In the Pines. It's been covered more than 200 times by artists, including Lead Belly, and memorably by Kurt Cobain and Nirvana on their MTV Unplugged album from 1993. This is another Studio 360 story featured in that same episode, with host Kurt Anderson introducing me to a life I realised I knew nothing at all about. As everybody knows, in movies and TV, the actors who stand in the background not saying anything are called extras. But in the nomenclature of opera and ballet, they're supernumeraries, or simply supers. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Every opera has a libretto, every opera has a story, every opera takes place in a historic context and therefore requires to be brought to life on stage. Let's say there's a battle in the music. So a director might stage 200 people to march across the stage or, or be seen in battle. For example, in Aida is a huge triumphant march. There is music. You have to have soldiers crossing the stage because that's what the music describes. You couldn't play the music and have not dozens and dozens of people cross the stage at that point. My name is Iggy Berlin. I work at the Metropolitan Opera and American Ballet Theatre as a supernumerary. A supernumerary is on stage in the theatre what an extra would be in movies. It's also referred to as a spear carrier because that's what you do. You carry a spear and you walk across the stage or standing somewhere with, you know, possibly a sword or, or a, a torch but mostly it's just people that will fill the scene with a crowd. To be a successful supernumerary, you have to have certain qualities, like you have to be reliable, and you also have to get along with people, like you have to be able to take direction. You have to understand that the opera is not necessarily about you. You know, your part is to be part of a story, to fill the stage, because there is a story uh, and a historical context to the opera, even if it doesn't specifically say a number of people in the score, it might be up to the director or the producer to say, like, we will have 150 people march across the stage here. 
So I started acting when I was 10 back in Germany as a child. I added later ballet lessons, ended up dancing and supering in ballet productions and opera productions back in Germany, and uh, then joined the army, finished the army. Then about a year later, I continued studying at the Ballet Academy of Cologne. I came to New York in the summer of 1989, and the following spring I auditioned for American Ballet Theater as a supernumerary, and I've been in almost every production since. So at the Opera House, you might get to, besides carrying chairs and tables and props and torches, Sometimes you're moving parts of the scenery, or sometimes you're just pretending to move parts of the scenery. And the pay structure is that you do get paid by act, which is not all that high, but there's extra pay for if you carry a torch or open flame, extra for heavy carries. If you do stage combat... In a production of Turandot, it's the second scene of the second act, and it's endless. And we stand there, it's a riddle scene. It goes on and on and on. We are under hot lights. It's a very bright scene. Everybody is dressed in white. Multiple layers of costuming, masks, headpieces, if not bald caps, possibly wigs. So it requires quite some discipline to stand there and endure the lights, the heat, the heat of the costume. And I do remember it just turned to the side as I see someone throwing up. And because he was wearing a mask like everybody else, um, it was coming through the eye-opening of the mask. But I think he was all right. One day, someone entered the opera house as a, you know, audience with his friend's ashes that he then threw off the balcony into the orchestra, thinking that he was doing his friend a favor, spreading his ashes at the Metropolitan Opera House, which then ended up probably in a vacuum cleaner. So the opera house was not the final resting place for this poor person. Supernumerary, Iggy Berlin, some of Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson from PRX, PRI and Slate, and an extract from a recent episode called David Diggs and Susan Laurie Parks in the Pines and Supernumeraries. Thanks to Jocelyn Gonzalez and Kathleen Unwin for their help sharing that with you, and to Ian Henderson for tipping me off to Studio 360. And if you've got a recommendation you'd like me to feature, then please do send me an email at pods at rnz.co.nz, and you might just hear it on a future show. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? For TV fans, that song can only mean one thing. Cops, the longest-running reality show in TV history. The format's simple. Cameras follow police officers on the beat as they catch and arrest baddies. 30 seasons in, there's now more than a 1,000 episodes. A new half-hour show comes out every week and repeats play everywhere TV is watched or streamed. 
But is the reality this pioneering show presents a true and accurate portrayal of modern policing? Well, not so much, according to Dan Taberski and his headlong team. They follow up Missing Richard Simmons and last year's Surviving Y2K with the final part of the headlong trilogy called Running From Cops. This is Cops 2013, Season 26, Episode 14. Every 30-minute episode of Cops has three segments, three different interactions between the police and citizens. This one here is the third in the show, and it happens in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Like pretty much all cop segments, it starts with meeting a cop in their patrol car. Driving by this church back here, uh, it's a closed church uh, for now, the time. I uh, saw a vehicle back there, uh, possibly somebody standing outside of it, so we're going to go check that out and see what they're doing. This one is Senior Officer Paul Tremblay. We know this because of the lower third graphic on the screen. Hey, how you doing? Good. What are you guys doing here? Just hanging out. Just hanging out? Okay. Well, it's, the church and it's closed. Okay. Uh, you guys have your IDs with you? Anything illegal, drugs, anything like that at all? No? Okay. So they hop out of the car, and her boyfriend tells the officer, full disclosure. I'm on, I'm on felony misdemeanor bond. Felony misdemeanor bond, so... Yeah, my felony charge is possession of cocaine. Possession of cocaine? Okay. When's the last time you used? It's been about, it'll be 30 days and eight days from now. 30 days and eight days. Yeah. Okay, so now we're all getting suspicious, right? I got you. Um, would you mind if I check to make sure there's nothing illegal in the car? Yeah. Okay. The cop starts rooting around in the front seat, past the half-drunk soda cups and empty chips bags on the floorboard. He's awfully nervous while he's speaking with us, so we're going to take a look in here. It makes me think there might be something in here. And he pretty much immediately finds what he's looking for. This right here, crack cocaine, has a almost like a cake consistency to it. So we're going to nick test a portion of that and see, test a small amount. So he picks up a sample and he does what's called a nick test. It's a roadside drug test. If it ends up being cocaine, it'll have a blue or a blue over pink change to it. And that would be cocaine. The blue hue on the pink on the bottom, that's positive for cocaine. He walks over to the kids who are sitting on the ground just waiting for this to be over. And he shows them the test. All right. Does that not look like cocaine? What is that? Cocaine. Where was that? On the floorboard where you were sitting. But both of you tell me that it's neither one of yours. No, it's not. And then there's the arrest. This time for possession and loitering. Awful. I cannot believe this is happening. I'm really blowing my mind the fact that okay. this is going on. Yeah, you're going to be placed under arrest for possession of cocaine. Just go ahead and place your hands behind your back, okay? And scene. It goes to commercial. Now, I don't like to toot my own horn, but not only have I watched a lot of cops, I also used to make reality shows for a living. Mostly kid shows and game shows, silly stuff. But I know my way around a reality show edit room. And as far as reality shows go, Cops seems pretty real. In that segment we just watched, there is no music. There's no narrator. It's just edited down observational filming of police at work. That's what I've always liked about it. And it's that style that makes it so believable to the casual viewer. It is what it is. Until it's not. A lot of people say that when you, if you call a police officer a pig... Yeah. He gets offended, but the problem is they don't know what pig means. 
And a pig means pride, integrity, and guts. Yeah. So you can call me a pig all day long. Yeah. I'm care. going to pass on that offer. Thank okay. you. This is John Burgess. He worked narcotics in Florida in the 70s and 80s. Did you always want to be a police officer? Was that always at the plan? I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> really? It would never seem like a good idea to me. It seems dangerous and difficult and thankless. Well, it, is, it is dangerous and it's difficult and it's very thankless. But he loved it and the law. And after 14 years, he went to law school. He's been a defense attorney ever since here in Buford, Georgia, where we met. And it's where he was retained by that young woman in that cops episode that we just watched. I, I had a uh, client said that she doesn't do drugs. She doesn't, doesn't do cocaine. Uh, but I represent a lot of people charged with crimes. And, you know, it's not that I don't believe them. I just follow the evidence. And when he saw his client on cops? Just looked like every other cops episode where somebody was busted for cocaine. I thought she was guilty. Having been in law enforcement, and I'm very fond of the police, and I'm very pro-police, but I just thought it was a regular episode. Um, so did her family, and so did uh, the district attorney, and so did everybody else. Until, that is, a secondary test on that drug sample that was taken on the scene came back from the lab. Cocaine, or alleged cocaine, came back negative from the state lab that it was not cocaine. In fact, it was nothing. They couldn't figure out what it was, but it was certainly not a drug. In fact, that roadside drug test in that episode, they do them all the time on cops. Pink is no coke, blue is coke, easy peasy. But what they never say on cops, and which I didn't know myself until now, is that in fact, those tests are notoriously inaccurate. The Department of Justice says they shouldn't be used as evidence in court. Pretty much every jurisdiction in the country says they are inadmissible at trial, including Gwinnett County, Georgia, where that young woman and her boyfriend were arrested. But when that test pops up as blue on cops, they never say, well, we'll see how the official test comes back. They say... And that would be cocaine. But it wasn't. And it makes you wonder how often something presented on cops as open and shut isn't. One month after those test results came back, that episode of Cops aired anyway, showing their arrest. And the wrong kind of local fame became too much for the young woman in that video. Yeah, and in fact, she ended up, over a period of a few months, <clears throat> moving out of Gwinnett County, where she grew up, several miles away. You put this young lady through this, for what? to film a damn TV show, and nobody cares. Uh, Langley Productions, and Mr. Langley himself, uh, has been able to, to get a niche and make a boatload of money. Later this season, we are going to hear from John Burgess again, because he didn't just drop it at that false positive. He dug deeper and found out things about the way that Cops is made, how it's edited, and the police participate, that he and I We'll never look at that show the same way again. Do you ever, do you ever watch Cops, by the way? I used to watch it all the time. Piss me off so bad now, I don't watch it. But I used to watch it all the time. Really? When I got involved in this case, I I can't even stand to hear the music. Could you before? I still I I I watch Cops all the time, and I can't stand that music anyway. Well, I always thought it was pretty cool, but. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a surprise uh, to me to, you know, be contacted about research that's uh, over 20 years old. But 
This is Michael Hallett, a professor of criminology at the University of North Florida. Not a whole lot of cops experts lying around these days, but Hallett is one of them. He studied the show in the 90s after it first came out. When we started asking questions about cops, we started with him. So when you see the show, when you watch cops, what do you see? What I see is a police department as, an, as a political organization trying to get control of the message. What's actually happening here is not the presentation of reality, but the presentation of a very narrowly framed, pre-negotiated, highly controlled version of reality that is favorable to some parties and unfavorable to others. In what ways is COPS not just a TV show, but a tool for law enforcement to manage their own public image? Just how involved are the police in producing the very show they're the subjects of? Unbeknownst to most viewers, police departments have full editorial control of all the footage that gets broadcast, ultimately. That is not only unreal, but is also a framing of the problem that is favorable to the framers. How far does that deal go? How much are police crafting their own message? A message played for hours in a row every day, absorbed by viewers to the point where they reenact it in grassy backyards. Get down on the ground now! And who will one day become adults or maybe even police officers themselves. On your knees. Hey! Stop resisting! Some of episode one of Running From Cops called The One-Celled Amoeba, hosted by Dan Taberski and produced by Henry Malofsky. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Getting a diagnosis that someone you know is on the autism spectrum can be a lot to get your head around, for families and, of course, for the person themselves. Fiona Churchman and Travis Saunders got the news about their son Patch when he was just a toddler. Now Patch is nine, and in the parenting spectrum, Fiona and Travis explore what autism is and what it's taught them, building up a picture of the things they wish they'd known when Patch first got his diagnosis. Most of the people they speak to on the show have an autism diagnosis themselves, so often overlooked perspectives are kept in the foreground. And although the overall tone's inspiring and positive, Fiona and Travis haven't forgotten the hard times when they felt all alone and at a loss over what to do. Yen, previously Jeanette Perkis, is an autistic advocate and author working in the public service in Canberra. This is what they want parents to think about after their child is first diagnosed. I would like them to have the message that this is something to learn, this is an experience, this is a journey. Don't make any hard and fast decisions now. You will be getting information as a parent of a newly diagnosed child from loads of different places. Um, Sometimes you'll get charlatans selling basically snake oil cures. You'll get autistic people giving you their opinions. You'll get other parents, you'll get other people in your life who know very little about autism but think they do. Autistic people are not broken neurotypical people. We're valuable, we're who we are and we're fine as we are and to focus on supporting that child to be them and to be the absolute best them that they can be and that autism is not a curse or a tragedy or a burden, it is a difference. And yes, there are different... I wish I'd really heard this when Patch was two. I've learned there is no time limit on learning. 
the early intervention window comes and goes and incredible growth still happens. Yeah, absolutely. So I was diagnosed in 1994 when I was 20 and I think I was one of the first adults in Australia to get an Asperger's diagnosis as it was back then. I was actually a prisoner at the time. Basically I'd ended up with this uh, very scary, exploitative, dangerous criminal boyfriend and by the time I figured out quite how dangerous he was, I got in way too deep with him and I I felt if I left him he would probably do something really uh, permanent to me. So I was really trapped and I ended up uh, committing crimes with him and, and getting arrested. I was a very broken sort of person. I'd gone through a lot of bullying at school and I really hated myself. I had no self-esteem. So that was the context. And there I was as a prisoner in late 1994. And a, a woman came up and she was a, um, a, a psychologist and she diagnosed me with this thing called Asperger's. And I didn't know what it meant. I thought it was just a diagnosis of being a nerd. And um, it took me seven years to actually accept it. And the point at which I accepted it was really the point at which I accepted myself. And it was when I was going to university. And I thought, oh, right, yes, that Asperger's thing, that's correct. And what an utter tragedy. I look at people now embracing their themselves and how wonderful it is. And I just think, wow, I wish that had been my experience. But yeah, I guess, I guess that's that story. Listening to this makes me realise how important our job is when it comes to helping Patch embrace his identity. Words make such a difference. Words matter. We know that. When people say, I'm sorry, when I tell them my son is autistic, it makes me mad. Or way back when I shared Patch's diagnosis with a friend and she asked, how bad is he? It was so hurtful. Jeanette feels really strongly about the debate over whether you are autistic or have autism. I've had people come up to me and tell me I shouldn't say I'm autistic and that I should say I'm a person with autism. Now, if you want to irritate me, that's the way to do it. Because firstly, the reason a lot of autistic people use what we call identity first language, so I am autistic rather than I have autism, is because autism is an integral part of who we are. We can't actually separate it. If you have something, you can put it down and leave it and come back to it later. I can't do that with my autism. Also, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm quite happy to own it. I'm quite happy to be autistic. That's nice. Autism is a spectrum and there is a shorthand that's developed to describe people. The terms low functioning and high functioning. I find it really hard to hear those terms being used because people then jump to conclusions which are often wrong. The kids who are called high-functioning don't get any support because they're high-functioning, so they don't need it, apparently. And the kids who are low-functioning, apparently, don't get any expectation that they can do anything. They're just denied the chance to try anything new or take on a challenge. Patch was probably about four when we started to talk to him about being autistic and being proud of this. But I know a lot of parents struggle with when to tell their child they are on the spectrum tell them why wouldn't you you know it's an attribute it's part of them it's not a shameful secret just tell them I don't think there's a blanket way you can tell a child that every child in exactly the same way I think take your cues from your kid 
and tailor the, the conversation to what they would like. If you get preteens and teens, they're often completely well aware that they're autistic on some level. So it's not that hard a conversation because they've probably considered it as a possibility already. With younger kids, it can almost be easier because you can introduce it as part of their reality before they remember you telling them. So it will be in their mind. They have always known they're autistic. And I, I do find that can be quite a, a good thing for kids to know from forever. It might feel like you're the first mum or dad to navigate this, but you're not. So what have other parents figured out that could help families in the days after diagnosis? My advice would be to follow your sons, follow your daughter. Um, Watch them, interact with them and just follow whatever lead they give you and just follow it wholeheartedly. A diagnosis of autism transformed my life really. It gave it a compass that it perhaps previously didn't have. It provides uh, a set of values and meaning and emphasis to our family that uh, is really quite profound. You know your child best, don't let a professional tell you otherwise. And if you're not happy with what the professional tells you, shop around. Don't be afraid to say no and stand up for your child. So you just sort of support him in what he needs and uh, he's, he's, he's a happy, healthy kid now. He's, he's, as I say, he's 21 and uh, he's now doing driving lessons. So hopefully within a year or so he'll have his licence. So that'll be a whole new world for him. When we first found out, it was, it just, it felt like doom and gloom. And you know what? It's not. He's this amazing kid, regardless of whether he's on the spectrum or not. And If we can give him all the tools that he needs, then he's just, yeah, it's incredible. I love him to bits. I think the most important thing I've learnt in the past seven years has been to always presume competence. I agree. There's a girl in New York, Emma, who has taught me so much about this. When Patch was first diagnosed, I read a blog written by her mum. It was raw and honest and it made me cry and laugh. And now Emma's taken over the blog. I am, um, I'm Emma. And I'm Emma's mom, Ariane. And a lot about Emma reminds me of Patch, especially how she busts the myth that not talking means having nothing to say. I asked Emma how she communicates. Em, can I, should I answer that for you? Yes. Emma is a speaker, but not able to completely answer all questions through spoken language. Uh, It's changing. It's constantly evolving. So the speaking has gotten much, much better. Right, Emma? You've been really working hard at that. But for the things that can't be said through spoken language, uh, Emma's types. Would you say that's correct, Emma? Yeah. Emma has hyped all of her answers to the questions that you've sent us and uh, has asked that I read them back. Emma, how do you describe being autistic? (laughs) Emma wrote, how do you describe being human? That's just the best answer. Yeah, it really is. People assume Emma's mind doesn't work because her body doesn't obey her mind. And Emma wrote, spoken language by those who find it natural to speak is thought of as of greater importance than any other form of communication. But for those of us who do not fall into that category, there are many ways in which we communicate all the time. 
It's getting speaking people to become more aware of those ways that is a good goal to have. She has this message for Patch and other children who struggle to express themselves through talking. Keep going and know that we all continue to learn and grow. You are not wrong or broken. Do not let those messages become embedded in your brain. Emma and Ariane sat down over four days to type all those answers. It's so impressive. I can't tell you how much that means to me. Ariane and daughter Emma in The Parenting Spectrum, presented by Travis Saunders and Fiona Churchman, also featuring their son Patch, and that's produced by Jennifer Lenman for ABC Audio Studios. And since that show was made, Jeanette Perkis, who we heard from first in that clip, has changed their name to Yen Perkis. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now. From me, Richard Scott, thanks a lot for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.